You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for November 15th, 2020, the 24th Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Justin Crisp. It's based on Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. I know hearing that gospel lesson is exactly why you chose to tune in to St. Mark's Episcopal Church at uh, around 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning or whatever time it is, wherever you may be. I have to say that uh, that story really bothers me, and it always has. It's the story of an apparently ruthless boss who, before leaving on a long trip, we don't know how long it was, it just says a long time, before he lay, leaves on this long trip, he entrusts the management of his investments to his servants, giving one servant five talents, another two, and another one. Now, a talent is an ancient unit of measurement, also used to measure money and currency. And five talents doesn't sound like a lot of money, right? Five is not a very large number, until you realize that one talent was the equivalent of something like $300,000 in today's money, which means that five talents which the master gives to the first servant, is like $1.5 million, okay? (laughs) So it's actually quite a sum. When I read that the servant went off at once and traded, I sure hope he was not in a hurry and acting foolishly, unless he was in a hurry to get to somebody like Brian Hetherington, who could be really trusted with this amount of money. And when I read that the third servant then went off and dug a hole in the ground, and hid the equivalent of $300,000. I'm like, dude, you do not put three hundred grand in the yard, okay? If you're, if you're a particularly kind of paranoid person, maybe I can see you put $300 in a jar, in a mason jar, and you know, you bury it in the backyard or something like that. Uh, I had a high school teacher who actually joked about doing that. I don't know that he ever did. Mr. Ogle, if you ever watch this, this sermon's for you. Uh, but you don't put $300,000 in your yard, okay? The master admittedly reacts even more harshly. This is no laughing matter for the master. He takes the talent back from the third backyard banking servant, and he gives it to the one who doubled his original $1.5 million instead. For to all those who have, more will be given. And as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. No wonder the third servant is afraid of him. And that's actually the hinge on which the whole story turns. The third servant's fear of his master. Notice his explanation of his odd behavior. Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. What happened, I think, is that the third servant was totally overwhelmed by what had been asked of him, totally overwhelmed by the scale of it. He was afraid that he might lose his master's money or some of his master's money if he traded aggressively with it as his colleagues did. And his fear was so extreme that it clouded his judgment. And rather than just put the money in the bank and let it collect some interest, not exactly a, an aggressive investment strategy, 
He dug a hole and he buried it in the ground. I had a professor in seminary who said that parables are like cars. Don't get hung up on the make or the model or the color. The car isn't actually the point at all. It's about where the car is going. That's the point. This is not a parable about money. It's a parable about fear, and in particular about how anxiety can keep us from living the lives of joy and gladness which God intends for us and for all that he has made. Anxiety, as I understand it, is different from fear. When we're afraid, we're afraid of something. There's a bear in the driveway, and we freak out. Or we watch the shower scene in Hitchcock's Psycho for the first time, and we scream. Okay, we're afraid of something, something that is right there. Anxiety is different. Anxiety is like fear in advance. It's about the anticipation of something. It's your mind and your body trying to get you ready for something bad that is about to happen so that you can defend yourself against it. As even Freud knew, and as others have subsequently elaborated, anxiety is the psyche trying to signal that trauma is just around the corner. The trouble being that the mind, for various reasons, often does so in obsessive, unrelenting ways that can be totally out of proportion to the realistic likelihood of the trauma befalling one and utterly impervious to one's efforts to reassure oneself. Now, some anxiety is totally natural, even helpful. It can be a good thing. It can be a way of orienting one in the world safely and maturely. But our minds very easily slide from that good kind of anxiety, which keeps us from doing, taking totally ridiculous risks, into anxiety of that obsessive, reality-disconnected sort, especially when it's prompted by fears or worries which are largely unconscious to us or opaque to us or when other more legitimate fears and worries get tangled up with those unconscious worries and anxieties, the ones which you know you're anxious about something, but you just can't quite put your finger on it. You just know that you don't feel right. I actually know this kind of anxiety personally, the kind of anxiety that causes you just to lie in bed all day and watch Netflix on your phone in order to distract yourself, or at least in a desperate attempt to distract yourself from just how awful the feeling is. I've been in therapy long enough to know why this happens to me and what my, my anxiety is often trying to warn me of and why it seems so catastrophic to me, even if it is not catastrophic in fact. And I've been in therapy long enough, happily, not to have had such a very bad day in very many years. But I get the anxious servant in this story. 
I don't know why this monetary career challenge sets him off, but it does. We're not told anything about what's going through the master's head in the months, days, or years, whatever it was, ahead of his master's return. We're not told anything about the dread reckoning that he's desperately anticipating. But look, we have to imagine it wasn't very good. Given that his catastrophic self-doubt causes him totally to renege on reason and literally bury his investment in the dirt. All anxiety, I think, is at bottom born of the fear of death. That ultimate state of helplessness in which one is totally at the mercy of the world and even at the mercy of one's own body. All anxiety is somehow caught up in this fundamental trauma which our psyches are trying desperately to prepare us for. And it's crucial for us as Christians, for each one of us to remember that it was exactly this sort of anxiety which Jesus Christ himself felt when he knelt for prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the evening before he died. It's important that we remember that Jesus was in this moment panicked so severely about what he knew was about to happen. His body and his mind were trying to prepare him so ruthlessly for the trauma that he knew was just around the corner. The trauma which he even knew was in some mysterious way supposed to happen to him that the Gospel of Luke says that he began to sweat drops of blood. Jesus experienced not only what it meant to die, not only what it meant to die in a particularly horrific way, he experienced what it meant to dread dying. To dread that fundamental source of anxiety. And he did so because God is not the master in this morning's parable. God is not a harsh man. And in Christ, there was no weeping and gnashing of teeth which he did not taste for himself, which he did not weep or grind into bits himself in order to free us and our world from those same things, from all that keeps us in the fetters of anxiety, which attend our being fragile, vulnerable creatures in a world like this one, and being aware of it. Jesus' own fear and trembling is proof that God is love, irrevocable, and splendid, always and to the end. And that, I think, can be the beginning of the end of anxiety's obsessive reign in our souls. Now, to be clear, I am not a psychologist. I am not a therapist. I'm only a priest, okay? But for what it's worth, I, I've come to think that anxiety loves denial. At least my anxiety loves denial. It can seem the natural thing to correct your anxious mind's exaggerations with the truth. The truth that there are no monsters underneath your bed. 
that it's extraordinarily rare to die of a heart attack at the age of 25, and that your mother or father really did love you, and that you're not stupid or worthless, and that nobody thinks so. But so often, at least in my case, that can just become more fuel for anxiety's fire. Because anxiety's end, its goal, remember, is to warn you about something, to prepare you for something, to signal some impending trauma that is right around the corner. And so when you deny what it's trying to warn you about, even denying it honestly, even denying it factually, it can often just make it scream all the louder. As though, hey, you're not paying attention. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Know what's actually going to happen. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And sometimes the thing to do is just to say, okay, fine, fine, fine. There are monsters who live under my bed and they are going to get me. I am going to die. Mom and dad did not love me. I am stupid and worthless and everybody knows it. And sometimes you're being sufficiently warned off of these things can give your mind permission to call off the alarm. I'm not saying it works every time. It works sometimes for me and it does not work some other times for me. It does not work like magic. But it does seem to me that there is something about actually entertaining the anxiety scenario, no matter how factually ludicrous it might be, and then discovering that the world doesn't end, even if that were true. The world does not end even in that case. Sometimes that can help to put everything back in its place. It can help to turn anxiety's siren down to an appropriate volume. And that, I believe, is actually the most important truth with which our souls can come to terms. The one that can actually make all the difference to our anxiety. The truth that there is nothing at all, in fact, that is world-ending. Nothing at all, in fact, that is world-ending, not even the end of the world. Because there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, as St. Paul says. Nothing at all. There is a great deal in our world today, I know, about which we have reasonable cause to be anxious. Totally normal cause to be anxious. You add to this the fact that we have even less access than we normally do to the fellowship and community which help us to weather those anxieties, and you've got a recipe for an outbreak of anxiety of the obsessive, unreasonable kind, which I think is afflicting our communities today. Certainly ours here. And if that's where you are this morning, if you are sitting in an outer or an inner darkness of any kind, I, I hope you can hear me. It can get better. There is help. And if you need help getting help, I hope you will reach out to me 
or to Reverend Elizabeth or to Father Peter, and we will help you get help. The secret of this parable is that the anxious servant doesn't just bury his master's money. He buries himself because that's how anxiety works. That's where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth, in the tomb of his own mind. And I want for you to know this. Jesus Christ laid dead and lifeless in that tomb too. And on the third day, he left it empty. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website at www.stmarksnewcanon.org.